far through one of the most challenging books in the Bible. Thank you for teaching us many things about yourself and what you are doing in the world now and what you are about to do in the coming season of time, years, decades, however long you deem best. You, Father, alone know the day and the hour that you will be sending your son back to earth as the husband to the bride to demolish death and evil and bring to an end the city of Babylon, as it were, the world in all its evil ways, and to inaugurate and begin the kingdom without end, the kingdom of his rightful reign on the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, come soon. We long for you, we desire you, we want to know you more, and we want to see you face to face, and we want all the promises that are laid out for us in Revelation 21 to come to pass, and so we revel in them now. Even in our longing for them, we taste something of them. We grapple for words to describe the beauty of seeing the promise that is surely ours, and even in seeing it, though it seems a long way away, it is still a whiff, a taste, a fragrance drawing us to you, ministering to us right now, comforting us even in today's sorrows, even in the burdens so heavy we don't have words to describe them. Come minister, I pray, to this body right now today, to me and to this gathering and to those joining us by live stream or by recording. Come gather yourself by the Spirit with us and hover over your word, watching over it to perform it in our hearts and in our lives and souls. Through Christ I pray, amen. One of my heroes, when I was a young pastor, I read a book called The Reformed Pastor by Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter is one of my heroes, and I commend that name to you. Think about the name Richard Baxter, a young pastor in a small town in England in the 1600s. He was sick all the time. He was constantly hurting. He was constantly sick. Migraine headaches, uh, cancerous tumors. He was sick all the time, and yet it was his goal to go from home to home ministering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the town of Kidderminster, England. And he did so. He preached mightily and powerfully, and he built up the church and was faithful as a pastor. The way he endured as a very sickly man, yet hopeful and filled with the joy of the Lord, is that he kept his mind constantly on Christ. In fact, I was reminded as I was studying this last couple of weeks for Revelation 21 about another book that Richard Baxter has written called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. If I were to recommend a book to you, it wouldn't be The Reformed Pastor, it would be The Saints' Everlasting Rest, a short book in paperback. You can download it for free online. It's a magnificently wonderful and helpful book. Richard Baxter, squarely in the time known as the Puritans, wrote so much about heaven that he said, the only way I'm able to bear up through my sorrows and sickness and illness here in this life is by thinking much each day about heaven. So he dedicated himself to think a half hour every day about heaven. To think a half hour every day about heaven. What would your life be like if you thought for a half hour every day about what heaven's going to be like? No fog. No drought. No death. No divorce. No betrayal. No adultery. 
No abortion. No sin. No greed. No lies. No goodbyes. He thought for a half hour every day about heaven, and that's how he made it through the painful, God-sifted suffering that Richard Baxter endured his whole life, really. He said this, if you would have light and heat, why are you not more in the sunshine? For want of this recourse to heaven, your soul is as a lamp not lighted. Your duty as a sacrifice without fire. Fetch one coal daily from this altar of heaven and see if your offering will not burn. Keep close to this reviving fire and see if your affections will not be warm. We're thinking about heaven because right now in Revelation 21, what's been hoped for and promised, not just in Revelation or the New Testament, but throughout the whole Bible, is this promise of heaven, the promise of the place of God where we get to be with God and enjoy God and know God and be loved fully by God. Revelation 21 is the picture in in the very end of time when all the battles are over, all the, the lake of fire has its inhabitants. All the blood has risen high as the horse's bridle. All the final battle has been waged and all the violence is concluded where Christ has judged and and all of the difficulties in this life are over. All the pain and loss and and the separation and the betrayal and the grief is all over. All sin that's originated from Adam and Eve's fall and, and continued to rage on this cursed earth all the way through to the end is finally concluded. There is no more sorrow, death, evil, or sin. And John is given this vision. What's he see? What does he see in this Revelation 21 vision? Then I saw, he says. What does he see? Does he see more of what God looks like? Yes, something of what God looks like. But we're not given a vision clearly of God except we're given a vision of what God's love looks like reflected in the church. What's stunning about Revelation 21, 1 through 8 is that it helps us see ourselves when we will look the way we'll look in heaven with Him. We will look at ourselves here in Revelation 21, 1 through 8 the way you look at your daughter when she's making her vows to her just about husband. And you're making all kinds of good decisions about whether this was a good marriage and he's a good guy by what you see in your daughter's face. You can tell volumes (laughs) about how good a husband is by the look on his wife's face. That's a little scary. That's a lot scary. But it's true. You look with John at the bride of Christ and you see how beautiful Christ is. You can see why we sing He is worthy with every fiber of our soul. I want you to look with me at the bride. Look at yourself here. And see the reflection in your future self at the wedding 
when we, the body and bride of Christ, marry our husband. Verses 1 and 2. What you'll see is the covenant declared. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In 2 Peter 3, we know that the earth and heaven as it is, the elements and the cosmos as it is, will be burned up but not completely annihilated out of existence because Peter, in 2 Peter 3, connects it to the way the flood came and water came over and destroyed all the earth, but the earth didn't actually go out of existence. It was renewed by God in the rest of Genesis. So also, if Peter draws that analogy for us, it seems safe for us to say that when the first heaven and the first earth are consumed by fire, we see that in Revelation, especially in the judgment chapters, it will be renewed by the power of God and when he sends, as it were, down the new heaven and the new earth to this location. There's going to be coffee. And hugs. With resurrected bodies. The people that you, that you know in Christ but miss so deeply, that won't grieve the Lord one bit that you hug them. The new heavens and the new earth will come physically because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. This verse says, the sea will be no more. That's not doesn't mean there's going to be no rivers and streams and oceans and seas. It means symbolically that all that's chaotic, all that's deadly, all that's dark and drowning and consuming of human life is going to be gone. All the wrath of God as it roils in the storms of the sea is all going to be gone. All that's over with. And, and we are not more developed than the ancient Hebrews who looked at the sea and its storms as the as the physical depiction of the wrath of God. We're just as vulnerable to dying in the sea today as they were then. All that's gone. And I saw the holy city. So it's a city coming down. And, and you should immediately think if you're reading Revelation, oh, I know about cities. I remember the city of Babylon and how evil and ugly it was and how it was destroyed and how it was used by the devil and the beast and the false prophet and it's cast into the lake of fire. So I know all about that city. Now I'm ready for the new and beautiful, right and holy, pure city, the city called the New Jerusalem to come down. And that's the city I want to live in. That's the city that's my citizenship. It's where I'm living right now. I am a foreigner and an alien in the very place that I was born. And according to the very kind of lifestyle and people that I grew up in, I'm a foreigner and an alien because my citizenship is in the New Jerusalem. I am no longer a part of the citizenship in this city called Babylon, which still runs the earth. You should have this horribly wonderful hatred for the old Babylon that you used to be a citizen of, and you should have a thrill, delight, stunning, marvelous, wonderful gladness that you are a citizen of the new Jerusalem that will come down. I saw the holy city, and what he has in mind is this glorious gathering of the bride as a city whose builder and maker is God. 
coming down out of heaven from God. And then look at these two massive verbs. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. These two verbs, prepared and adorned, are in the perfect. It means that God did them and he completed them in the past and they have ongoing results, have been fully and successfully prepared by God, have been fully and successfully adorned by God. Prepared is the word poieo from what we get poem. God poemed the church fully and perfectly and then presented her to himself, his son, in the coming of the church. This is what we are working toward and preparing for. This is what every sorrow and difficulty you endure is achieving in your life. This is what every sermon and every scripture, every song and every heartfelt hug and handshake, every ministry, every thought that you think that points you Godward is preparing you for this beautiful arrival where you will come down as it were the staircase in all splendor and glory and beauty having been washed by the water of the word and you will be presented to Christ as the bride whom he will marry. The word adorned there comes from cosmeo. It means to, to sh- make a face shine with beauty. Cosmetics is the word we get from it. But even more than that, it's cosmos. So God is saying here, I adorned my bride so that she's as beautiful as the work and handiwork I've done in the stars of the heavens. Just like I said to Abraham. God is presenting to His Son, His church, a city, a bride, a people who are so stunningly beautiful that as C.S. Lewis says, if we were to see ourselves at that time, we would be tempted to bow down and worship. Yet for the presence of Christ, who alone we will worship for eternity. Look at the way the church, look at the way the gathered people of God is the focus of Revelation 21, the focus of the book of Revelation and should be the focus of faithful believers. If there is any believer in the world today who has a dismissed and low view of the gathered covenant people of God but thinks they know Christ, they're completely duped. You can't love Christ and not love his bride. This is what the whole of history is moving toward, the beauty of the bride. I just love going around this church building this last week during vacation Bible school and seeing suits of armor and walls from castles and seeing name tags of all these wonderful people who I wanted to meet because they had royal titles. Slay the dragon, get the girl. The whole Bible is summed up and here it is. Welcome now, welcome now, all the beautifying, the poeming, the adorning that God is doing in your life to make you beautiful for the day of your wedding. Welcome it now. Don't begrudge it. God knows what He's doing. He knows what He has sifted and and permitted to come into your life. He knows the hardship and the difficulty. Do not settle for counterfeit churches. Don't settle for counterfeit churches which say, we have better community than you evangelical Protestants. Don't settle for the counterfeit churches which lie to you. They are nothing but suburbs in Babylon. Remember who bought you and whose you are. 
remember that you are a citizen of New Jerusalem. And in New Jerusalem, it is very, very difficult and hard and painful. But blessed are the pure in heart for what? They shall see God. Welcome whatever hardship that's causing tears now. Welcome whatever hardship that results in death now. Welcome whatever difficulty God has sifted that results in grief and mourning now. For it is your preparing and your beautifying for them. If all things will work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, then we can only conclude all things are working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. This covenant is declared, and now even more explicitly, the covenant is enjoyed in verses 3 and 4. It's the central plot of Scripture, Abraham, Moses, David, Christ, the new covenant, and now you see covenant vocabulary on display, and this is the way we see the glories of God reflected in the face of the church. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, I take this to be an angel, behold, the dwelling of God is with man. This is exactly what the covenant promises of the Bible have been saying throughout the entire scriptures. Behold, the dwelling of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see those words dwell and dwelling, it's used as a verb and a noun. He will dwell, the, noun, the verb, and then the dwelling is the noun. Both of those have behind them this idea of skine in Greek. Skine in Greek. It means to, to live with intimately, to tent with. Actually, the Old Testament uh, version of this same word is to tabernacle. It's what God did in the tent with the people of Israel. He came to live intimately with them. And it's actually related. This was new for me, and this is a delicious little tidbit to add to your Bible knowledge. Skine, the Greek word for dwelling in a tent together, is related to the Hebrew word Shekinah. Oh, man, this is so fun. Shekinah glory comes into the tent, and that's the intimate dwelling that we have with God. Here, this has been promised throughout the Scriptures, and Jesus came to say, now I am Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He's the Shekinah glory in the flesh dwelling with us, but yet for all the years between Christ's first coming and His second, we bear up under sorrows and pain and loss and say, Lord, I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. And, and, and I confess, there's so many allurements in Babylon still that keep me from wanting to be with you. So half of me wants to be with you, but help me deal with the other half of me that doesn't. Don't let the half of me that doesn't want to be with you lead and divide and, and ruin my life, and separate me from everybody who really loves me and everything that's really good for me. Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Here, it isn't just a promise in Revelation 21. It's happening. It's happening. We're coming into the presence of God. He has made us worthy. He has cleansed us. He has poemed us. He has beautifully adorned us. He has called us into His presence. We're about to see God. 
face to face. What will he do? What will he say? How formal will it be? What will the, what will the protocol be? Will he be far away? Will there be ropes? Will there be signs? Will there be ushers? Will there be guards? Will there be walls? Will there be foyers and lobbies and narthexes? Will there be pomp and circumstance? No, 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 none of that. There will be hands that touch cheeks and with tender touch wipe tears away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What is the first act of Almighty God when we come into His presence? It's not to get a wristband. It's not to sign in, got here at 4 p.m. It's not to get a stamp on the back of your hand. It's not to get a card that you hang around your neck to sign in. It's to gaze into his face. Be near enough where his hands can touch your face. And he knows what Revelation 20 and 19 and 18 and 17 included. He knows what your life includes. He knows what you have yet to come. He knows what the church will endure and has endured since Christ ascended to his right hand. And he says, I'm ready to wipe away every one of their tears. The list of things he does here are what a kind and gracious, merciful, Emmanuel-like Lamb of God does for believers who have been thrown to the lions for sport. And their mothers and their wives and their sons and their aging fathers have been grieving while they watch their young men be devoured by lions for the bloodthirsty cheers of the Romans. And he says of that horrible experience of suffering as a Christian in the first century to the churches to whom John writes, death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's exactly what Isaiah promised would happen in the new heavens and the new earth when he prophesied in chapter 65, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in which I create, for behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Receive now today, the heavenly promise that your God will comfort you 
and wipe away your tears. Receive that now. How do you receive it? You receive it by the inbreaking of the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit dwell in you and all who believe in Christ and let Him be your comforter. Jesus said, I will send you another comforter. So God the Father comforts us. Jesus was our comforter in the flesh and Jesus went to be with the Father so He could send another comforter. Isn't it funny use the word another? It means I've got all kinds of comforters. The whole Trinity exists to comfort me. Fatherly oversight, the Son defanging evil at the cross and the Spirit dwelling within me to say, I see and I will wipe and I will comfort your sorrows. It's exactly what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And listen to what the promised Holy Spirit does according to Scripture. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? To the praise of His glory. There's a beautiful picture here in the former things passing away. Be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit comfort you. As He will in heaven, let Him heal your broken heart right now. Offer it to Him. Let Him wipe away your tears and heal your broken heart. It's what He's in you for. The covenant has been declared. The covenant has been applied. And now Jesus speaks and He says the covenant is complete. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lamb from the throne speaks. And He who was seated on the throne, that's Christ, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And He said to me, It is done. I, Christ, am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So to the believers, Christ says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm making all things new. That means I am the ever-existing one. I was before everything Alpha. I am after everything Omega. There is no other God before me, above me, or after me. I am the sovereign and eternal one. I am the one in whom exists life. And therefore, I am able to give freely without payment life to all who ask. To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. It's an echo of Isaiah 43. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me and jackals and the ostrich. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. This is Christ declaring as He did on the cross, it is finished. And here He says, it is done. Everything He achieved on the cross is now realized and all the people for whom He died on the cross and received His sacrificial atonement are standing before Him and He declares over them, it is done. Everybody's here. Not one has dropped out. All those who are called are predestined, all those predestined are justified, all those who are justified are glorified, not one drops out. Not one drops out. 
He kept us. He hung on to us. He held us fast. He preserved us so that he can come to the end and say, you're all here and it is done. Just like my sacrifice was achieved on the cross, so my full enjoyment as your husband is declared and achieved and complete now. What a glorious worship. No wonder Baxter wants to keep thinking and thinking and thinking about heaven a half hour every day in order to deal with the sorrows and burdens he was afflicted with in his brief life. Look at what Christ says. To the thirsty, verse 6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. About 30 years ago, I preached this passage, verses 5 and 6, at a college, Christian college. And I said, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for Christ? Are, Are there other drinks that you are drawn to and tempted by more than drinking from the fountain of living water and the spring of life from the Lord Jesus Christ? It's like the woman at the well. She'd obviously drunk from many other fountains and, and, and Jesus was offering her the water of life and she didn't fully realize it at first, but then her eyes were opened and she was saved and in fact she went to all the Samaritans and won them to drink of Christ with her. Do you drink from Christ? Is he your satisfaction? Is he your delight and your refreshment? Is he your joy? If you're honest like me, you have to say, yes, there is something that's so thirsty for Christ in me, but there's also allurements for other things to drink that are not healthy, but are rather toxic for me, and I confess my belief, help my unbelief. It's easy to misunderstand. It's easy for preachers to leave a wrong note of emphasis. I offer no call to a work here. This is not a command to do the one work of being thirsty and drum up within yourself the effort to become thirsty. This is a work of God Himself when He gives you a desire, a thirst for living water. It's He who places that thirst within us. Just as Jesus said of Himself in John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's a kind of drinking from Christ which is believing in Him. It's faith that says, I'm going to delight in you and drink from you. And now it's a battle and a struggle. There's left and right temptations to drink other things. But Lord, I am going to drink from you. And the more I drink from you, the more satisfied I shall be in you. And the more my palate spiritually will desire to drink from you and no other. What if you find in yourself a lack of thirst? What if you find in yourself an inability to thirst the way Revelation 21.6 says, to the thirsty I will give the water of life. Ask God to give you a desire to thirst in Him. Ask God to to give to you a desire for God. God wants to grant that prayer in you more than you want to pray it. Lord, give me the desire for you this morning. Give me the desire for you in this sermon. Give me the desire for you in my life, in my parenting, in my marriage, in my relationship to my parents or my friends or my co-workers or even my enemies. Give me a desire and a thirst for you that can't be satisfied by anything that you have made, but only by you yourself. 
And then it's almost as if John is pastoring his reader, us included by the Spirit, in answering, how does that thirst begin? What's its start? On what basis do I go to the Lord and say, Lord, give me a greater thirst for you because I confess my thirst for you is only half there. Look at verses 7 and 8. Here's the, here's the covenant applied to our lives. Here's where the covenant becomes intensely personal. It's, it's, it's been declared, it's been experienced, it's been completed by Christ, it is done, and now it's applied very personally. I want you to see this. Look at verses 7 and 8. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's, it's like John is saying by the Spirit, here's the basis of your thirst. It's a first a conquering thirst. The one who conquers. You know this is the most commonly mentioned theme in Revelation. Over 17 times I counted yesterday. The verb for conquer is used in the sense of conquering by faith. It's it's the thirst I have that conquers all other, other false thirsts. It's the sovereign thirst that conquers unbelief and sin in me and around me and makes me say, Lord, I want more of you. But what's the basis for asking God for it? How do we come to God and say, Lord, work in me right now a real, passionate, all-consuming, conquering thirst for you? It comes in the next line of verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Heritage. That's, that's a covenant term that God has reserved for His chosen people, His sons. Men and women who are both risen up to the status of sons. They have a heritage, an inheritance. It's like my daughter and my son have every reason to come to me and say, I am counting on you to give to me as your son and daughter your heritage. And I, with great joy, plan to give it. We who are adopted into God, men and women, are called sons. We have awaiting us from God an inheritance, a heritage. And here it is in Revelation 21.7 coming to us. So that teaches us exactly how to pray right now for this conquering thirst. Lord, since I am your son, please give to me a thirst for you that conquers all other thirsts. And I looked up in the Bible and I found David and Moses and Abraham and, and Psalms written by others beyond David all saying the very same thing. Based on, your in, on, on our inheritance, Lord, give to us your salvation. Based on our standing before you as sons with an inheritance, give to us our salvation. David in Psalm 28, the Lord is the strength of his people. He's the saving refuge for his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. You see it? This is how to pray to God. Go to him and say, Lord, I'm your son. Men and women both say this because sons is not a gender thing. It's a status thing. 
Lord, I'm your son. I have an inheritance coming from you. Please give to me yourself now and conquer all rebel thirsts in me. I'm your family. You're going to wipe my tears from my face. You're going to embrace me fully on that day. And in the sorrow and in the pain and the hardship until heaven arrives, I'm your son. Please give to me a foretaste of my inheritance. I will not run away to a faraway nation and spend it foolishly. I will invest it and cause your name to be glorious. This kind of person who's trusting in Christ and has an heritage, is a son, is an adopted son, has a certain lifestyle, and we've seen that over and over. There's a certain fruit that comes bearing off the kind of tree that's rooted deeply in the sonship of the living God. And so also, those in Babylon, not in the Jerusalem city, but in the city of Babylon that remain, they have another toxic and, and evil root that gives rise to their behavior. So it's no surprise that verse 8 lists all the behaviors that were accosting and violating and accusing the church in that day. And John was promising by the Spirit, every one of those who commit those sins without repentance will be burning forever in the lake of fire and sulfur. You know, it's remarkable the sons that dwell inside the new Jerusalem, inside the bride. They have the conquering thirst, and God is their portion. They're pure in heart, for, and they're seeing God. He is wiping away their tears. They're not able to say, we've never been cowardly or faithless or detestable. We've never murdered or been sexually immoral or committed sorcery or idolatry or lied. They can't say that. What they can say is that in all of our committing of those sins, Christ has been our cover. Christ has paid the debt. He's granted us the gift of repentance and we have turned from such sin and we disavow it and we hate it and detest it ever more so with the same kind of hatred for sin that God has. Christ says to himself, I have a bride whom I have preserved for myself. I have washed her clean and I have brought her to myself. She once was unholy and committing of sin, but now she's washed, sanctified, ready to be my wife, just as 1 Corinthians 6.11 promises. What's happening here in the face of the bride is that she's being loved. This is what love looks like. This is the love that every one of us was wired and born to have and experience, but we've never found here on earth yet. We've all been loved imperfectly, and we have all loved others imperfectly. The only one who loves us perfectly is Christ, and we have been loved perfectly by Christ, we who trust in Him by faith. This is the climax of that love, Revelation 21. When we will meet Him face to face, we will be fully comforted and embraced by Him. We will be touched by Him. We will be held by Him. We will be spoken to Him, and He will declare over us, it is done, and there will be a wedding ceremony to which all wedding ceremonies owe their origin and aim as their climax. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12 says this, love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, Christ, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So our friend Richard Baxter will say to us, and I'll leave this ringing in your ears, Christian, believe this and think on it. You shall be eternally embraced in the arms of that love which was from everlasting and will extend to everlasting, of that love which brought the Son of God's love from heaven to earth, from earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, and from the grave to glory, that love which was weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spit upon, crucified, and pierced, which for you did fast, pray, teach, heal, weep, sweat, bleed, and die. That love will eternally embrace you. That is so good, Lord. Thank you so much for the help that we get from your word to think about heaven. Thank you so much for the joy that wells up in our hearts to think that Revelation 21 is not just for somebody else out there, but it's ours. Thank you so much for the promise that Christ is ours forevermore and we who walk with him now have begun that sweet, intimate relationship that will only take on massive new dimensions of reality when we see him face to face. Thank you for every believer in this room and thank you for those who maybe have never trusted Christ and only think that what we've seen in Revelation 21 is myth and story and imagination. Let their eyes be opened. Let their heart be warmed. Let their decision be to trust you and be saved. Give us a voice to call out to our own hearts while we are weary and sorrowful. There is a heaven awaiting you. Think much and long on it. And oh, grant us to be good friends to one another, to speak of heaven with each other often so that our hearts would be hopeful and encouraged. Thank you so much for Revelation 21 and the, how the covenant is fully and successfully accomplished by it and how helpful that is for how we are watching it unfold today. We ask you now to apply it to our hearts and enable us to respond to you with a song and then yet respond to you with a life, however long you deem for us to live, that reflects these beauties to others around us and in, ensures and entrenches and deepens them in our own hearts. I pray this in Jesus' glorious and husbandly, awaiting name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together, would you?